Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Yeah, good. For the second time round that I've said hello and asked you uh, how you're doing this morning. And me replying that, that I'm groggy and the coffee's going to kick in. And then we realize we've done that opening like 55 times in a row. So we probably shouldn't do it again. This is true. But I guess this is a function of recording across the Pacific Ocean when one of us is happy and functioning in the evening and the other one is uh, getting dragged out of bed to talk to, to, talk to everybody. Yeah, well, no one wants to hear about it again, so we we will we should probably we should probably get to it. That's probably a good idea. Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent. You can automate your marketing back to work with Mailchimp. You can get enterprise level automation without any of the headaches. Send an onboarding series, introduce new subscribers to your business or organization, automatically follow up with customers after a purchase, and recommend other products that they'll love. Surprise your best customers with a coupon triggered by their shopping behavior. Remind customers of the products they've left in their cart. Encourage them to complete their transaction. Reengage inactive subscribers. There's all th- sorts of things you can do by automating your marketing using Mailchimp. Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent. Yep, as always. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. Mailchimp, which runs on a decentralized protocol uh, known, known as uh, SMTP, but but email. Oh, by, by, by the common term. not bad, Ben. Not bad at all. Well, thank you. Uh, I've, I've, the coffee's starting to kick in. Crap! I can't. I've used the joke. Can't use it again. But it's, it's probably <laughs> true in this case. Yeah, it is a it is a nice segue into what we're going to talk about, though. So I don't think have, have we ever talked about cryptocurrencies and and blockchains and Bitcoin and whatnot on the podcast. I've written about it a couple times, but I don't think we've actually ever podcasted about it. Is is that correct? That is correct, and I must confess it's not something that I know lots about. So I'm looking forward to diving into this with you. Yeah, and we should probably it, so writing about writing about and talking about something like this is is very tricky because on one hand you don't want to sort of overwhelm people that aren't familiar with it and so you want to make it sort of simple and approachable on the other hand you don't want to you know look like a a simplistic sort of dummy to the people who who live and breathe this stuff so we will do our best to sort of trod that line and if we are too convoluted on one side or too simplistic on the other our apologies in advance yes then again one could argue that that sort of statement encapsulates both the sort of promise and also sort of the the problem with cryptocurrencies. If if we on a podcast for technical audience have to sort of give a warning ahead of time that it will either A, be too complicated or B, too simplistic, depending on your knowledge base, you're probably dealing with something that is not exactly ready for broad-based consumption. That, again, is a very, <laughs> very nice segue into talk, going from our disclaimer to diving into the subject. So cryptocurrencies and the sort of idea they're built on called called a blockchain have been around for a while. I think the original paper and implementation, which was known as Bitcoin, which I'm sure everyone has heard about, was around eight years ago. And Bitcoin certainly has had a fair number of articles and things written about it. It was definitely in the news a lot around the end of 2013, I believe, in 2014, where the, the price ran up to around $1,000. And you know everyone's like, oh, this is amazing. And then, oh, it's going to crash and then of course it crashed and went down to two or two or three hundred dollars and now it's it's now over well over two thousand dollars so it is uh it, it has been the sort of the sort of roller coaster that you might expect from something that is kind of casting itself as 
as a currency, which has you know tremendous speculative elements. Totally. I mean, the thing that's so fascinating to me about these things, and it it ties into something that we have spoken about a lot, which is one of the fundamental things about the internet is that distribution is the value of it drops to zero. The marginal cost of recreating something is effectively zero. Things can be replicated infinitely. And that's very different from a traditional currency, right? Like the the fact that a currency has value is derived from the fact that there are a limited number of whatever it is that you're out there exchanging. And the idea behind a cryptocurrency is that 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 degree of scarcity has been created algorithmically in the digital world, hence the blockchain, hence you get manifestations of it, like with Bitcoin. That, that's exactly sort of the, what makes this entire area so interesting. I don't think we're going to get into the details of of how cryptocurrencies work. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating and sort of catnip for, you know, I think technically inclined people in general because it's it's incredibly elegant. Basically, what it does is it 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 assumes everyone sort of acting in their own interests and balances the various incentives to the to the people that are involved, such that you create a trusted system without having any sort of central store of trust. So, in the case of currency, the central store of trust is the United States government. To take the U.S. dollar as an example, mm. a dollar is worth a dollar because the United States government says it's worth a dollar, and it is. In, it's the only currency you can pay taxes in, and if you don't pay taxes, you're going to get arrested and go to jail, right? It, it, like <laughs> there is there is substantial force behind the dollar as a currency, and that by extension, that sort of force. It creates this, uh, uh, basically trust. It creates trust so that I can pay you in 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 dollars. Mailchimp can pay Exponent in dollars. However, you know I can pay Mailchimp for services in dollars, and it's a it's a commonly agreed upon sort of means of transaction because it's backed by a third party. The the sort of neat trick, as it were, with cryptocurrencies is there is no third party. It's all distributed amongst everyone who's sort of involved in the blockchain. And you have people who who are individually verifying every single transaction to make sure that's a valid transaction. But they're doing it not out of goodwill. They're doing it because by virtue of verifying the transaction, they have the opportunity to gain currency of their own. And so they're selfishly motivated. And so the way it it combines selfish motivations and incentives in this sort of elegant distributed system, it's you know, it just from a pure intellectual perspective, it's absolutely fascinating and really quite brilliant. I love this topic so much because it dives into one of these elements of of human nature that I think we do a good job of pulling apart and that is questioning assumptions. And you think about how currencies first came to be. They were uh, precious metals, that there were a limited amount, like there was scarcity built in, and people would use those as mechanisms for exchange. And then in the same way, we've talked almost like applications moving up the stack. It's almost been some version of that with currencies as well. You have these precious metals with with, uh, scarcity, and then it moved towards governments backing it uh, using potentially paper or notes um, with a a gold or some other precious currency as the standard running underneath it. But then that got removed and it was just the government promising that something was worth something and that was enough. And now this almost feels like the next evolution where the government's being taken away and the fact that people's incentives are there and people agree something is worth something is enough for for this to be worth one. Bitcoin is worth upwards of $2,000. And 
when you step back and think about it, the fact that we're passing around bits of paper or have been, and now we're passing around digital tokens, and people are just agreeing that these very ephemeral things are worth something, is kind of crazy when you step back and question the assumptions, right? Right, but that's that's why walking through that progression is useful because if you step back and think about it, the fact that we consider a printed piece of paper you know, to be worth something is, is is itself sort of silly, right? It is. And, and this is kind of a point I made in the article. You could even walk farther back. The fact that we consider gold valuable mm. is also kind of silly. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, there are industrial applications, but realistically to try to get to a end state where the current value of all the gold in the world is justified by its industrial applications is a fool's exercise. The reality is gold is worth a lot because we as a species have decided that gold is worth a lot over over the over the millennia. And the same thing with with other sort of precious metals. And and I think the reason I I kind of dived into that is you know the easiest reason to dismiss Bitcoin. And and I think we'll get into some of the problems and the the price and the speculative nature of it. And you know, I, I you say it's worth two thousand dollars. It's you can <laughs> exchange Bitcoin for thousand dollars today. Yes. Is that, you know, there there it's certainly a a a lot of speculative mania I would I would suspect going on right now. But the the broader point is sort of the same point that something is worth something not because it's worth something it's worth something because we collectively decided it's worth something mm. and 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 that is when you think about it the number one reason to believe in bitcoin is is not so much the math it's not so much the uh, utility of it it's not so much where it can be used and where it can't be used the number one reason to believe in bitcoin as a actual thing is because lots of people believe in bitcoin as a thing yes this is um one of the most fascinating concepts i remember learning in economics was this notion of a keynesian beauty contest which is basically keynes set up this thought experiment where in you would have a newspaper contest and if you pick the right if you pick the the contestants who everyone else agreed with you'd have a chance of winning a prize and in those circumstances you don't vote for the person that you think is most beautiful, but rather you vote for the person that you think all the other players are going to think is most beautiful. And then it gets to the third order and the fourth order. And it's it's such a fascinating idea because it's a great way of grounding this idea that things aren't necessarily attached to their intrinsic value, but rather the value also derives from what other people think they're worth as well. It's a fascinating concept to think about in, in the context of not just money or currency but you know or stocks or mm. or just kind of like the way you live your life i mean if you think about it so many sort of self-help books are trying to help you find fulfillment and happiness in life are really about the 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 bottom line lesson is break out of the keynesian beauty contest mm. in some respects right stop worrying about what other people say you should worry about stop valuing what other people value and instead value what what, what, what you value and obviously to be in a economic and financial position that you could make those sorts of decisions is a is a great place to be. I mean, no mistake about it. But it, but it's fascinating. This is a very much a recurring sort of idea, not just in economics, but in philosophy and, and all sorts of aspects of, of human life. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it in the context of hadn't thought about it in the context of living life. But that makes that makes total sense. Um, it absolutely does. 
Yeah, I would say this idea, I talked about, I referred to them as myths in part because I, I quoted a section from uh, Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens that, that talks about myths in the context of, of sort of humanity. But this idea of myths is this sort of shared values and shared experiences that don't exist in any sort of reality, right? I mean, he, he the section that I quoted is followed where he describes the modern corporation. And the reality is that that corporation doesn't actually exist at all. Like Apple doesn't exist. Apple, th- there are pieces of property, there are the phones, there are the people that work there. But the entity that is Apple Incorporated that w- we refer to constantly as a sort of concrete sort of thing, there is no sort of concrete sort of thing, is that we've all agreed amongst ourselves that corporations are a thing and that they can have various names and take on various characters and all these sorts of things. And if you think about it, this is something that we write about in in, in podcast about a lot when we talk about things like culture and how Mm -hmm. that influences decision-making and the idea that culture is the accumulation of decisions that lead to positive outcomes and they just become embedded in people's consciousness that those are myths like culture is like the one of the classic examples of myth and how it governs sort of human behavior where people do things because that's just the way they do them when there's actually no like there's it's not tied to a physical sort of entity it's just a it's it's all mental it's all it's all in people's heads it's crazy and it's crazy how we're almost programmed as a species to hang on to exactly these types of things we will personify these organizations and talk about them but it's not just i mean and it might be tech companies for the folks that are listening to this podcast but if it's not tech companies then it's sports teams or it's it's our, our nations, our countries. These these things are primarily made up of very ephemeral elements. They are ideas and uh, things we believe in, and things they represent, and they they generate huge amounts of emotion among uh, large percentages of the population. But when you step back and again question the assumptions around what they actually are, it's it's kind of crazy when you think it's it's mostly just people talking about ideas. Is, right? Yeah, and I, I would certainly urge caution on dwelling on this idea because it can lead you into some uh, pretty pretty interesting places, to say the least. But you know, it's something that I think is is been a a topic in the last few months. I mean, I first really encountered. I, I think I mentioned this in the article that I first in a footnote. I first really encountered this sort of thinking in. Uh, constitutional law course when I was in, in university. And the professor basically spent the first part of the, of the class discussing how the U.S. Constitution, constitution was a myth. It, it it only has power because we all agree that it has power. Mm. And it was like, it was so mind-blowing to me at the time because you think about laws and the Constitution and all sorts of things, like that is a that is a entity that you can base decision making on and, and and you can organize you know around in all the institutions of like the courts and the like all this sort of stuff it's all made up <laughs> like it's all and i'm reminded of there's a famous there's a famous steve jobs quote about sort of computers and products that once you realize that humans made all this then mm. you realize that you can sort of make it yourself. Yeah. That doesn't just apply to products. That applies to like literally everything in sort of in sort of human life. And again, we're not going to devolve into sort of philosophy and the meaning of life and that sorts of things. But all that's it's all closer and underneath the closer to the surface than you might you might think. 
Yes, this notion that all right, and I'm I'm going to take a small left turn down this path, but this notion that it is an illusion and part of having uh, having people buy into it and behave in that way is continuing the illusion. And then things come along and break people's faith in the illusion, whether it's a country that starts behaving in a way or a leader of a country that starts behaving in a way that's counter to the elements of the myth or the leader of a company leading it in a direction that people who buy into the brand and the ideas behind the company or who work at the company, it, it, if they start behaving in a way or cause the company to start behaving in a way that is counter to to what people believe around it or or even with the currency like as soon as you you did a like the the correlation or the the story the illustrative story in today's piece around uh the tulips like that's so fantastic like everybody agrees but then suddenly there's this break in the illusion and people start to wonder hang on on what basis is this truly valuable? And once that breaking confidence happens, the whole thing can come crashing down. Well, but that was the, that was the funny thing about the tulips. So I, I don't know. I, I try to make a super sort of meta point. I'm not sure if I fully landed, land, hit the landing. But the I, the whole tulip thing, and it's, it's under some dispute. But most people, I think, agree at this point that the commonly accepted narrative of the tulip bubble was actually not really what happened mm. at all. But for all intents and purposes, the tulip bubble did happen. It a tulip really did cost the same as a big house, and, and it doesn't actually matter if that was the reality in 1634 or 1636, whenever when this happened. What actually matters is that when I say to you, James Allworth, when I say in the podcast that I wonder if Bitcoin is like a tulip, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Mm. Like the actual reality is different than the reality that actually happened if that makes sense because we're all we we, we all have agreed to agree about what a tulip may what a tulip is in reference to right and the the value of the story as an illustration in that context is actually more valuable than whether it's historically accurate or not and that's why the that's why the myth if it is indeed one persists even if the underlying basis for it being correct or not is not true Right, and the other thing that's really, I think, is is mind-bending and useful when understanding the importance of myths, and you kind of referred to this before about companies or, or countries when they sort of violate the, the myth and how traumatic and damaging that can be. This gets at why advertising is effective, why advertising works. Advertising is myth-making. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's creating a sense in people's minds of what a particular symbol or or product or company stands for, and this is why you talk about like you know you have to create products that are faithful to the brand or or, or you know what, what's the word I'm looking for um, brand brand something oh totally um, that that. They're based in they're based in the reality. Like if you are if you are if you advertise, like, <laughs> I, I love coming back to the United one. If you say fly the friendly skies, and you're getting people to haul, you're getting security agents to haul your customers off your plane, and that gets recorded and posted on on social media. That is that that advertising is not going to be effective. But if you predicate it on just do it, and everything you do inside the company is focused on on performance and getting the best and being associated with the best, then that myth-making is so much more effective, right? 
Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And or, you know, the sort of it just works. And then you have commercials that show the product working and it being a big breakthrough, like the early iPhone commercials, mm. you know, that just showed, showed it just showed how it worked. That's all that's all they did. It was and there was some of the most effective advertising you've seen. But on the flip side, when the product stops working or stuff is breaking or you don't know what's going on, that starts to sort of that, that starts to chip away at the myth. And sometimes things that cl- come along that absolutely shatter the myth. Yeah. And you, and you've seen brands just kind of fall off the face of the earth because of some episode or something that comes along. And it's because everyone, and you think about this, everyone, everyone, like lots of people like to complain about marketing. It's all fluff and brands and blah, 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 blah. Yes, it is all fluff. Everything's all fluff. That's, that's the point. That's sort of the point that we're making here. The power of myth. Right, it's turtles all the way down, as the saying goes. Right, I mean, it's it's all it's all myth. It's 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 myth on top of myth. Now, are we saying there's no reality and there's no sort of objective truth? I mean, that's what I mean. Why this sort of deep philosophical arguments are just below the surface? Like they they really are. And if you want to go down that path and debate that, you can. Uh, and and by all means, I, I mean let's get a couple. Let's, you know, let's get some whiskey and, and talk about it all night long. I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. But on a sort of concrete business basis, that's why marketing matters. That's why advertising matters because this sort of stuff is real in that people have collectively decided it is real, and that's plenty enough. Yeah, it's been bred into us over all these all these years. It's And you see it in institutions like religion and in tribes. There are all these reasons why we're like this and how it will... There's almost like a genetic selection component to it because the folks that are more likely to have believed in it historically are more likely to have survived. And so to dismiss that now as just being fluff and refusing to buy into it is to ignore one of these things that's lying late inside of us that is just a it has a high degree of control over how we behave whether we like it or not right and that's kind of the, the core thesis of of sapiens the core sort of difference of homo sapiens relative to other animals is was the ability to create and share myths and that is what enabled the sort of large-scale organization beyond, you know, the sort of 150 number that's commonly cited as the, sort of the maximum, like the maximum size that can be organized through intimate relations where you know everybody. Once you grow past that, how do you keep people organized? How do you keep people going in the same direction? We talk about the context of startups, right? The, the Dunbar number is what's called 150, where, where that's the maximum number of individuals with, with whom any one person can maintain sub-relationships, mm. which, which means in the context of a, of a startup, up to that point, you can have have a relatively flat organization. You can make decisions through consensus. You can you can have a sort of like a rah-rah camaraderie sort of approach to a company. But once you get bigger than that, th- like you have to have some sort of institutions to make things worth. And you have to have some sort of shared myth. This is why companies have founding stories. This is why they're, they're passed around. And where culture starts to become a more controlling factor than sort of interpersonal relationships because the interpersonal relationships can't scale that far. But mm-hmm. culture scales. Culture scales infinitely. It's a story. It's the original sort of zero marginal cost entity when it comes to humanity. Like, uh-huh. You can tell a story again and again and again. That's such a good way of putting it. Uh, but in that seed of its growth is also the seed of its downfall, right? Because it, that that scales and 
it does so so well and it starts to govern people's behavior, the extent to which you can change it based on external circumstances changing is also limited. And it takes things really starting to break down. Like you hear about cultural uh, scholars of culture talking that once a culture becomes very strong due to the success of the entity over which it governs, it becomes it typically requires a crisis in order to be able to change the culture because otherwise people are just going to keep going with what they've always been doing. Right. This is why we always talk about companies don't change until they have no choice but to change because they're mm. going to like go bankrupt otherwise, right? And, and this is exactly it because you have to break the culture and the culture has to be broken through something that is so clearly in violation of the normative force of that culture for everyone to collectively sort of wake up and approach things for first principles. And this is, this is why companies get disrupted. This is why companies can't adjust. This is why when, when circumstances change, companies continue on the path because that culture is not the province of any one person. It's not the province of the CEO. It is the shared reality of everyone in that company. And Again, it's tremendously powerful. It's how companies can scale, and it is tremendously limiting. It's why startups can come along and wipe new companies out. And the beautiful thing about theory when it's defined and understood well and there's a causal understanding is that it's recursive. So everything you've just described about companies is true of countries as well it's this is how this is how empires rise and empires fall the 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 external circumstances change and more often than not it means that uh, if the if the country or the empire isn't able to change fast enough to meet those circumstances changing or the culture prevents it then someone else will spring up in that in that environment and end up becoming a dominant force in its place Right, and it, it, that's really interesting to think about in the context. Uh, let's let's stick with empires, something like the American Empire, you know, or or, or the America being sort of dominant in, in the world. And in the meantime, we've re- we've talked about things like the internet and how it's fundamentally changed society, and we've we've discussed the impact of social media on the pre, on the the last election, for example. Mm. And there's all sorts of these very sort of disruptive, changing forces that are up against a a culture and a idea that is the United States that is sort of western civilization <laughs> to, mm. to take it to its very broad sort of extreme and to what extent can it be absorbed to what extent can things be combined together and the amazing thing about culture is it's not a fixed thing and i think we're we're kind of we're stating it as a sort of fixed thing, but it, it is, it can be changed. People's, and it changes on the margins and, and the strongest sort of myths, the strongest sort of cultures are adaptive and they're constantly absorbing new ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, but, but sometimes ideas are so extreme or changes are so different, or sometimes, you, you know, a culture ossifies and a way of thinking becomes hard, less and less flexible over time. And you get to situations where you do, you do reach a breaking point. And again, thinking about it at the company level probably is easier to think about. There are companies that are very adaptive and adjust and, and, and figure out how things go. But once they get really successful and make a lot of comp- make a lot of money, that starts to ossify. That starts to get, this is the way we do it. And how can I do, do I know it's the way we do it? Because look at all the money we're making. And, and you start to get less flexible and less able to adjust such that when something truly different comes along, 
you can't really change. I mean, Microsoft will always remain the sort of classic example. Microsoft was tremendously adaptive and shifting and changing. And even with the internet, the whole like doing Internet Explorer and trying to wipe Netscape off, off the map, it was th th you could still see the flexibility. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the flexibility was already limited enough that they, they couldn't think about the Internet outside of the context of APIs and owning mm -hmm. the runtime. And so they, they, couldn't, they couldn't bend their minds far enough to imagine something like Google and, and the, that the nature of controlling being the winchpin of the internet would be fundamentally different than the nature of being the winchpin of, of the PC. And so they, and so they fell. I mean, yes, the company still exists and they still make a lot of money, but they're not the force that they once were for exactly the reasons we're talking about. They became too successful and the internet was too different. And those sorts of things when they collide is when great companies, great companies fall. And the, the interesting overlay to this is the, the, the nature of the internet means that the size of the global opportunity, if you get something right, increases. But at this, and you would expect more big companies to emerge and to last for longer as a result. But at the same time, the speed of change is increasing. And so you're getting this increasing a tussle where uh, you the 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 size of the opportunity causes these companies to rise super fast, but the nature of the environment is changing more and more rapidly, allowing new things to pop up that better suit the external environment. Uh, even more rapidly. And the company that was successful and uh, that was successful last year and in a previous generation might have been successful over an extended period of time because the external environment was changing much more slowly. This speaks to why you're seeing such turnover in the S&P 500 because they, these companies rise so quickly. They are adapted to the environment at the time they rise, but the environment changes so quickly that it creates an opening almost immediately for someone new to pop up and become the, the the apex predator that's perfectly suited to the environment at that time. And then the cycle repeats and it gets faster and faster and faster. I'm going to push back on that a little bit, though, mm. because I think the you could argue that in some respects, when it comes to particularly very large companies, the the reality is that changes slow down. It's like, in fact, the big companies, the big, you know, sort of the big five, you know, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft still are becoming larger and more powerful and ever more stronger. In part because we went through this sort of very disruptive sort of phase where companies mm. rose and companies fell. But what happened was, and we, you know, we, Google is an example of this. When you became the internet is so distributed and so large that the sort of the point of entry, and this is the whole point of sort of aggregation theory, the way mm. in which you discover things. When you when when we switch from a supply driven world to a demand driven world, the companies that can aggregate that demand become the most powerful, and and that is why, and in some respects, change is slowing down when it comes to particularly information flow. I think that is a very fair pushback for those big five and those companies, the tech companies that managed to exit the stratosphere. I think that is absolutely true. I think your pushback is entirely fair. I think what I described earlier stands true for everyone else who hasn't managed to lock in that customer relationship. Right. I, exactly. I think that's exactly right. And because the, and this is gets to the larger issue of sort of the widespread sort of disruption of society. We, we, 
so much of society, we, we talk about in the context of like newspapers or retail that it's based on friction, that you have to actually go to the store. You actually have to get a newspaper, right? And once that mm. friction goes away, it, it, the entire business models of entire industries fall apart. Mm-hmm. And that has various knock-on effects. Like the 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 fall of retail and the fall of newspapers are intertwined because retail used to advertise in mm. newspapers, right? Like this, it, and you're going to see that sort of seep out further and further. And the question is how far does that seep out go? Like if we if everything the foundational parts of society are based on certain assumptions about about distribution and friction and that all changes if you enter zero into the equation as i'm fond of saying mm. what what happens and how far up does that change go and to what extent can the institutions in place adapt mm. certainly lots of companies can adapt certainly industries can't adapt as we've seen in in news and we're starting to see in retail mm. Can can governments adapt? Can can the nation state, as it's framed today, adapt? I mean, it, it it's certainly a interesting thought exercise at, at a minimum. It it totally is. But allow me to take a slightly left turn based on your article uh, this week uh, and this thought that you provided at the end, which is that the the nature of the incentives of the cryptocurrencies. Uh, such that it encourages people to get in early. So in the case of Bitcoin, it is substantially easier to to have mined the Bitcoins because of the nature of the algorithm. It required a lot less computing power to get to the point of mining successfully one Bitcoin right at the start than it was further down. And each time one is created, it gets harder and harder to, to mine the next one. Now, if you think about one of the things that could actually alter the trajectory of what you just described, these big five um, organizations in a dominant position, it is, I mean, what's the, think about it from the perspective of a, a, a new user and you see a new social network. Yes, there is a hell of a lot of cachet in being able to say, I was one of the first Facebook users and being able to say, I'm an early adopter. But it's not so much that, and with all the new tools that are emerging, it's not so much that anyone's going to go and sign up for everything and try everything unless they're perhaps a VC and they're trying to keep a pulse on it. But what happens if you were, there was some other additional incentive associated with that. And it was this notion of overlaying the blockchain into new services such that there became a really big incentive to get in early to one of these new services that was such a mind-bending idea for me that you brought up in this most recent article because that actually provides a super strong incentive for people to go out and try these things because there might be more value attached to being an early user in a service other than just cachet in the future. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So, so let, let, let's let, let's go through it sort of piece by piece. Mm. And I think the the sort of overarching point to make uh, is that say, take the big five, or take really when when it comes to information flow, take Google and mm. Facebook are are, are mm-hmm. the big two, right? Why why are they so dominant? They're they're so dominant because given the vast amount of take Facebook for example, there's all the people in the world. They are the sort of trusted third party. I put trust in air quotes, but by in the, to the extent in which people use Facebook, they are the trusted third party by which we track and communicate amongst our the people that we have a relationship with. Right? If you think about it, Facebook is the government of social relations on the internet. 
the government sort of guarantees the value of a dollar. Like a dollar is a piece of paper, but why does it actually mean something? Because the government says it means something, right? What is my connection to you on Facebook? It's some bits on a hard drive in, in a data center somewhere. Mm. It, it's actually nothing. Mm-hmm. Why is it? Why do those bits actually have meaning? They have meaning because Facebook has set it up such that our, we are friends on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. And and this idea of there being sort of a centralized agent that makes these applications make sense applies mm-hmm. to Facebook. It applies to Google because we need this sort of centralized thing to hold it all together. And what makes the blockchain so intriguing, and again, to, to be clear, this is one of those things where we're looking very, very far out into the future. But what makes the idea of the blockchain so interesting is we discussed earlier about in the case of currency, well, currency, if you just abstract it up a level, what if you know it's all meaningless anyway? What if no mm. longer you don't need a government to back it? You mm. just have this sort of distributed, distributed network that backs it. Well, mm-hmm. that could be applied to lots of things. It could be applied to a social network. It could be be applied to compute capacity. It could be applied to to, to lots of things. Now, are they always going to be as efficient as a central as a centralized sort of sort of agent? No, probably not. But there are different trade-offs that go with that sort of centralized sort of e- efficiency, right? Sometimes ha- being distributed is useful. If it, if a nuclear bomb comes along and all the telephone lines are destroyed, it's useful to have a packet switching protocol that lets you communicate. That's how the internet came about, right? And, and if you think about the internet, this idea of packet switching and the fact that you can route around disasters, this was a crazy idea in the 1960s, 1970s when it was sort of come up with. And now we're sitting here in 2017, you are sitting in San Francisco, and I am sitting in Taipei, and we're communicating via, via packet switching. It took 40, 50 years, but the concept of of the idea was sound. It just took time for it to actually sort of become a reality. And I would I, I would contend the, the idea of the blockchain of distributed verification without needing a third party is it's, – it's like that. It is meaningful to have digital scarcity, to have all the advantages of digital and in that information moves instantly and all that sort of thing. Yet you can also have unique bits for, for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. which, which is totally different than the way the internet works today. Now, how does that actually manifest itself in a Skype call and recording a podcast? I have no idea. I have no idea, and frankly, I think the future is pro- is a lot farther off than the vast majority of people, mm. cryptocurrency believers, think it is. But that doesn't mean the future is not going to happen. There is something there. The idea of digital scarcity is such a powerful one that it, it's going to it's going to be something. I completely agree. I I think there's this there's always the case that there's this initial burst of interest when it comes to new technologies like this and it probably gets a little overhyped and then there's there's a bit of a crash and then things pick up. But I want to I want to pick up on something else you said just then that I think is worth exploring and can help uh help tease out what that future might look like. And that is the this notion of the advantages and disadvantages advantages of centralization versus decentralization. And I think a lot of people assume that centralization, where you have a governing body, is always setting the rules, is always a better, a better place to be. And there are a lot of circumstances where that is true. There have been problems that have emerged with Bitcoin, for example. And because it's decentralized, it's really hard to fix and people get 
into these holy wars around it. But there are instances when having a centralized authority can be a really bad idea and in, uh, and, or, or, or have r- very bad outcomes for certain actors. And having a decentralized option is really powerful for certain actors. So when Greece shut down its currency, when it went through a financial crisis, the Greek government shut the banks and there were limits placed on how much money you're able to get out of the current country. And all this Greek money fled into Bitcoin because they could use that money to get it out of the country because there were no restrictions. There was no central authority that was able to control how people move Bitcoin. Like it wasn't based on what a bank was saying or a government was saying. And that's the same idea that I think you can pick up and take and apply to social networks. Facebook is, yes, it is effectively the government of social networks, as you just described, but it is consistent doing things that people don't like. And it is possible. So one of those things that popped up recently is it using people's emotions as a basis for potentially allowing advertisers to target users. And there was a document we should link to that that kind of leaked that suggested that advertisers or, or companies could get involved and help young people when they're having a down moment feel better. And obviously, there was a little bit of outcry towards this. You could see a world in which there is a parallel between what happened in Greece and a central authority doing something that a lot of actors inside of Greece didn't like and therefore the actors moving towards the decentralized model because of that incentive, you could see some equivalent, you could imagine some equivalent happening in the social realm where I don't like the way this government is behaving and here is this decentralized model that broadly I much prefer these rules and I'm going to shift my business over there. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, you can see it in theory. It's still yes. very hard to sort of see it in practice. But again, that's why I put in this article that it's kind of like the early 90s, or it's like the 90s in terms of Bitcoin. And, you mm. know, there was lots of ideas and companies that were created in the dot-com era, all of which went bankrupt. And But no one looks back on that. At the time, people were using that as justification to say that the internet is stupid and it's not going to be anything. Mm. That obviously was a bad prediction. It was a problem of timing. It wasn't a problem of media. You could argue though that Bitcoin is 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 even earlier than that. Like we're in the early like packet switching days, you know. And mm. but but I think the I actually like the Bitcoin example relative to Greece because if you think about it, if you actually follow sort of the train of thought I was going at earlier, and you think the internet is so disruptive and the current changes are such a big deal that maybe you know the very foundations of sort of our nation state system could be shaken. Well, it becomes very rational to invest in something like Bitcoin because, or because it's or, or or gold or whatever it might be because you are worried about the sort of long term viability mm. of of fiat, of fiat currency. Now, I'm not necessarily endorsing that. What I am saying though is, if all it takes is enough people to think that for it to be a reality, it doesn't matter right. that that Bitcoin is just some computations that computers are running. It doesn't. Just like it doesn't matter that money is made out of paper. It's real because money is real because enough people say it's real and because the U.S. government backs it and the U.S. Mm-hmm. government ultimately is, is, is also an entity of our own creation. Same thing with Bitcoin. It doesn't matter that you don't think that the current system is going to ever change, that fiat currency will always be viable. It matters that enough people believe that. Mm. Now, can Bitcoin be used on a day-to-day basis? Not really. I mean, there's like an ATM card you can get that uses Bitcoin to pay for stuff on, a, on an ongoing basis. But realistically, for the general population, no. But then again, you can't really use gold at the store either. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, 
and, and again, like if you think about it, this is where one of those one of those areas where it's so easy to put on your sort of your your well actually hat. And like you know, well, well, actually, gold is is worth something because whatever. But actually, it's not. It, it's all it's all made up. There are instances like this all over, though. Diamonds, for example, the 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 extent to which diamonds are valuable, because typically, well, really, because of this myth that this company has managed to propagate of the fact that this is something you should give to somebody else when you get married, and then they've managed to control the supply of diamonds. We're at the point now where there are companies that have developed technology that can create diamonds that are indistinguishable from the ones that have been pulled out of the ground, and it's so interesting to see these things play out because the assumptions technology in this instance is forcing people to challenge the assumptions but these myths and this notion of scarcity and why people want them and why people think things are valuable and the extent to which uh, folks just accept the assumption from the people around them without questioning why it's crazy the extent to which society runs on exactly that well, and also the extent to which people say that other people are wrong because, uh, because you like know, because it was my myth is is more valuable than, than your Absolutely. myth. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyhow, the the reality is is you kind of mentioned uh, a few a few minutes ago, not on the recording, but that you know we're we're well into this podcast and we we haven't actually talked about cryptocurrencies yet, but <laughs> but I actually think we have. And and this was above all sort of the point that I was trying to make with with this with with this article is mm. cryptocurrencies are real because enough people believe they are real and that that genuinely is enough and that's number one and number two there's actually a ton of really of real utility here at least in theory again the idea of the blockchain and and and, and digital scarcity and distributed verification and no third party you could. It, Again, you can rest your mind run wild about all the things that this can entail. Now, a, a, a normal offshoot of the mind running wild is speculative sort of behavior and like, mm. wow, this could all be useful. And, you know, Bitcoin, you know, it, it, it's currency of the future. And meanwhile, Bitcoin has lots of sort of fundamental issues that you kind of referred to that may or may not, it may end up being a footnote in history. It was the first one. Maybe it'll end up being something going forward ethereum the sort of first the first large scale with with sort of smart contracts which is sort of really more of like an it's almost more like think about like an escrow sort of service like if some conditions are met then something else happens that's basically what's going on but that's really amazing imagine not being able to do transactions large transactions or whatever sort of transactions without an escrow service it's Mm. it's that's that's at a sort of a nutshell kind of what ethereum is but Ethereum itself has its own problems. Like they probably distribute too many tokens to start out with. They could run out of money. Like there's there's all sorts of issues with these versions. And it, so much of the value of Bitcoin is in the imagination of people that are are buying these things. And now you have situations where I had a friend from high school who could barely operate a computer, not technical in the slightest. Sent me a message that he had uh, bought Ripple, which is another 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 uh, uh, currency the other day. And it's like it's like. I mean, good for you. I mean, hopefully, you can make a lot of money. But that makes me a little nervous that you are buying it because the reason he bought it is because another mutual friend of ours has quadrupled his investment in in like a month or something, and he wants in on it. And you know, that's that's 
that that really is like the tulip of our imagination. Tulips. I was I was just about to say, anyone want to buy some tulips? I hear I hear the price of tulips is on the way up. Right, but but that doesn't mean just because speculative behavior is absolutely happening. I don't think there's any way to deny it, and it it seems inevitable that there will be a crash at some point. Again, I'm not giving any buying investment advice or when you should buy or sell by any means. That's up to you to decide on your own. It just, you know, as as a neutral observer, it seems to me that is likely the case, and it's well you can. And it's very easy to point to, oh, look at all these use cases. But the reality is those use cases aren't actually real use cases. They're all theoretical use cases. They're not real use cases until normal people can actually use them. And and even just buying Bitcoin is still difficult for for you know for for normal people, much less getting into other things like smart contracts, wherever it might be. Totally. But here's the thing. It's almost always the case that, and well, I, I mean, tulips obviously probably were a little bit divorced from the underlying value. But you think back to that dot-com crash that you just mentioned, the fact that there was so much interest and hype and speculation resulted in a whole lot of funds going in. And yes, it, they were too early, but the seeds of some of the biggest companies that we have today, Amazon and eBay, for example, grew out of that. And all the money that would have flown into places like Microsoft and Apple that like yes that speculation is sometimes wasteful but it also lights a whole bunch of sparks that later on might actually result in something really valuable being developed and I would say the same about cryptocurrencies I think it's the same thing at work right exactly and and this is kind of the, the, my concluding point there's a difference between between being just wrong on the facts like whatever whatever happened with tulips you know the underlying value is fundamentally sort of you know limited as opposed to being wrong in the dot com era you yes you may have lost, the money loss is the same like you the money's mm-hmm. gone right wealth is destroyed whatever whatever damage you want to you want however you want to des- describe it but that there's a difference when you're just wrong in timing all the dot com idea and the dot com fever and the dot com speculation was not just mostly right it's just a matter of timing, it arguably understated the importance and the mm. impact of the internet. Think about it. The way we thought about the internet in 1998, 1999, at the very height of the bubble, did anyone actually think about the internet fundamentally changing politics? Did anyone think about the internet playing a role in Donald Trump becoming president? Did anyone think about all these wide-ranging knock-on effects on society of the internet? No, we thought about selling pet food online. And guess what? Today you can sell pet food online. Mm. But so much more, the impact is so much greater. And it's so easy to get stuck on the valuation question, on the on the bubble question. Is 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 our cryptocurrencies in a bubble right now? Almost certainly. I I, mm. I mean you don't you don't see this skyrocket in valuation. It's not it's not it's almost by definition it's it's a prima facie a bubble in some respects. But that mm. doesn't mean that there isn't something there. And that this is just going to be a fad that goes away like Beanie Babies. Yes, I I, I would concur with that. There, you can you can paint a you can paint a world in the future where there is underlying value based on the ideas that are contained. Now, uh, uh, is is the uh, are those underlying ideas and the value that they represent or potentially represent reflected in the prices of? the manifestations of those ideas today, I would agree with you. I would argue, no, this is probably a bubble. But can you see some logical extension further down the line where these ideas evolve into something that is truly valuable? Absolutely. 
Right. And uh, unfortunately, that's not, not very helpful for in- investment dev- advice, right? The, all the people who invested in pets.com did not, were not investors in chewy.com, which, which was, you know, bought for $3 billion last month. Basically, yeah. basically the exact same idea. But fortunately, um, I'm not writing an investment newsletter and I'm, right. and I'm not doing investment I, advice. I mean, inve- investors do what we do, but they have to get the timing right as well, which is, which makes the job substantially more difficult and also much easier to judge whether you're good at it or not. Yep. We just get to opine on the internet. <laughs> yeah a conversation with you once a week it's it's fun so anyhow uh i'm i'm mostly woken up now which i believe is another sort of trite thing that i usually say every time we we have these sorts of things uh i i again there's if you want to learn more about cryptocurrencies like we purposely did not get into this sort of details of how they work i think the the high level takeaway is it, for me, is is digital scarcity? This idea that something can be scarce. Oh, there's a there's another sort of broader thing. One thing, one downside of cryptocurrencies today, uh, in, in my estimation, is the costs of them are largely externalized. And what I hmm. mean is, like these require the, the the way the algorithm works is the more computing power that's thrown at it, it, it keeps changing the difficulty of the problem mm-hmm. of the of the the proof of work. It's called. And that means that there's sort of an arms race to get ever more powerful computers because if you have a more powerful computer than everyone else, you will be able to solve the, the proof of work more frequently, which means you get more Bitcoin. But that means everyone's incentivized to also get more powerful computers. And, and, and you kind of get – and today, you can't – it used to be you could run Bitcoin you know, and, and make money on your laptop. Now there's these massive dedicated sort of Bitcoin – you know, installations with with custom made chips that just run the the uh, you know the Bitcoin sort of algorithm. The problem is that those consume uh, a ton of energy. Yeah, they which the energy production means pollution, means means heat, all these sorts of things, and none of that is actually incorporated. It's incorporated to the extent that uh, you know these companies need to pay for that energy and that's why there'll be like bitcoin like server farms in like iceland because there's like it's like cold there and there's there's natural cooling and by in their you know renewable energy sources but there's a lot of sort of pollution that comes from i mean it's all relative it's still you know compared to like planes or cars it's it's not much but there's an externalization of these sorts of things that is problematic and it's problematic in that there's because there's no feedback mechanism the incentives are for that to only become greater and greater sure it's funny that this is one of the things where the internet drives things to extreme and this is another issue where the the where economies haven't properly reflected externalities in pricing for example the price of energy the internet is just exacerbating that and here is another fantastic example of that exacerbation happening yeah, I mean, it, it it is the internet to some extent. It's also just sort of the – if you have a marketplace where some aspect of the cost is not borne by the participants in the market, that aspect will be ignored. And, and you, pollution is always sort of the classic example, and that's the case here. I think the good news, though, and what's very intriguing is the shift to renewable energy. People despair about, you know, sort of some of the current economic policies of, say, the U.S. current U.S. administration, for example, the economic logic of renewable energies is is super powerful. I mean, because mm. the idea is it's much higher fixed costs, but you have, you know, 
much lower approaching zero marginal costs on an, uh, the sort of ongoing production. And getting that balance in place is is what make will make it viable in the long run. And those costs are coming down. The cost of solar has plummeted far faster than any sort of projection ever, ever said it would, and it's, it's continuing to do so, which is really cool because I presented this as a problem, but in the long run, if we moved, say, well, just as a thought experiment, let's presume all our energy is solar. In that case, energy is basically free, which means that cryptocurrencies are is basically money powered by the sun. <laughs> like like so we are cool. we are we are converting sunlight into a scarce digital good that is used for all sorts of things. And uh, this speaks to exactly the issue underlying GDP, because you can imagine a world in which all the things that are truly valuable are imagined in this, that they're, they're digital goods. They are, they are, uh, reflections of ideas being passed around. And GDP is really good at measuring physical goods. It's much less good at m- measuring these digital ones, particularly ones that are abstracted away from where the value gets harder and harder to capture. And this idea that we can move towards an economy, I, I mean, it, it dawned on me the first time when I saw people playing World of Warcraft and farming for goods on World of Warcraft and paying huge volumes of money to get these goods. Like, these are good. That are being that are nothing more than ones and zeros on some server that Blizzard or Activision own, and yet they are valuable to people. And it's the same thing we're talking about here. And increasingly, the economy is moving away from industrial physical goods towards these digital ones and zeros being valuable. Yeah, we actually did talk about this a, a couple of years ago in the context of free to play games and free to win games where mm. the game is like League of Legends the, the game is totally free and all the monetization comes from buying basically decorative items and and, mm. and and outfits and there's entire marketplaces built around this and it and it and people love to make fun of it or make fun of like stickers on like wine, for example, which brings in hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like it doesn't if people think it's valuable, it's valuable. Like and 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 you don't get credit for pointing out that there is nothing physical about it because the your alternative physical goods. Why are those valuable, too? Because we decided they are like that. That's. And what it's really kind of freeing and thinking about all the aspects of business and branding and marketing and and why they are valuable and why they matter because this stuff is is just as real as anything else or if you want to put it the other way just as fake as everything else totally and that was my takeaway from your article in this discussion that was my big takeaway that this notion of the things we value and how sometimes it can be very rational and predicated on the value underlying it or as you get more abstract towards scarcity or to just people agreeing without even realizing it that it's valuable and that makes something valuable and the under like the only way you see that is when you start to challenge assumptions you don't just take a piece of paper from a stranger in a shop and then say it has five dollars like actually thinking about why that's valuable and how we got to the place where that's valuable. It's so interesting unpacking that and following that down the rabbit hole. I would ask you to define rational, but that but this podcast, I think we, we, we've already reached our limit. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I don't have to answer that question then. Well, th- this it does get back to our, our original conversation about disruption and, and, and 
like what is what is rational it's you know if you mm. define things by what goes in a spreadsheet like again this you see this again and again and again this is a common thread through a lot of our discussion if you value things based on a spreadsheet or in speeds and feeds you will come to one decision mm. but but when you're dealing in consumer markets in particular there are other things that matter and just because mm. you can't put them on a spreadsheet or just because you can't make them into a physical object yeah. does not mean they are not real things that are worth real money Real being, you know, your definition, of course. Yeah, I think that's a great place to finish. I totally agree with that. We didn't talk enough about the protocol stuff. You kind of hinted at it. But, you know, a lot of the protocols of the internet, like HTTP or SMTP, those came about when the government ran the internet. And it was a socialized creation of a good that was done because there was a third party, right? There that had a motivation to do so. It's very hard to create a standard today because where's the money, right? Instead, the standards mm. become centralized. Like Twitter is, we always bemoan the fact that mm. they could have created like a privately owned standard. Instead, they try to do sort of their own standalone thing. But the, still, the presumption is it would be the centralized privately owned one. What's exciting about this, and you, again, you mentioned it, but we, we don't have time to get into it, is by having this sort of decentralized nature and this sort of decentralized monetization mechanism that is sort of uh, initial coin offerings and those sorts of things, you you can – there's at least the potential. There's a pathway. Again, no one has gone down that pathway yet, but there is at least theoretically a pathway to the creation of new standards in a way there really hasn't been for the last several years, and that's incredibly exciting. It totally is. Uh, nice way to tie the end of the episode back to the very start of the episode, Ben. Like a, a segue across an hour. I'm impressed. Well, well thank you. Uh, it, 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 call it a myth. The myth of the myth of exponents. <laughs> the myth of the segue. And yeah, our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring today's episode of Exponent. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye bye.